invitation to turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. And let's stand together and let's pray and ask God to, to bless our study through the book of Revelations. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Revelation. And as we go through it over the next few months, Lord, we just pray that you would give us a, a greater revelation of your son, Jesus, a greater anticipation of his coming. We do pray for clarity as we study it, that there wouldn't be confusion. So Holy Spirit, would you come and illuminate the person of Christ to us in Jesus' name, amen, amen. As we go through Revelation, we're going to change up Wednesday nights a little bit. Normally, we're going through the Bible on Wednesday nights. We're currently in Deuteronomy. We're going to pause that, and we're going to devote Wednesday nights to studying Revelations as well. So we're going to cover chapter 1 this evening, but then on Wednesday night, we're going to look at just two or three verses in depth. So we'd invite you out to the Wednesday night study as well, and I would encourage you Study the book of Revelation with me for the next four to six months. Read ahead, study it, and really allow the Lord to speak to you. You're going to get so much more out of it if you read ahead and and you study. So what we're going to see in chapter one is that Jesus is the Almighty. It's a title that's given to Christ Almighty. It means all-powerful one. This Greek word that we translate into the English word Almighty is used... Ten times in the New Testament. Nine of those times are in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation reveals to us the person of Jesus Christ in such a unique way that he truly is the Almighty One. In verse 8 of chapter 1, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. This is a message that we need to hear right now. August 2021, with so many things going on in our lives personally, in our world, Jesus is the Almighty. Jesus is the all-powerful one. He's the one who is seated upon the throne, and he rules and he reigns. With the book of Revelation, there's a lot of controversy, and there's a lot of confusion, unfortunately. But we'll find tonight in verse 3 that God says there's a blessing that comes for those who hear this book, who read this book, and who seek to keep it. God says that he blesses those who read the book of Revelation. I like to think of it as the double blessing, because we're always blessed when we read the word, but apparently we're double blessed when we read the book of Revelation. But how many times as we as believers shy away from reading and studying the book of Revelation because we go, it's just too complicated. I can't understand it. And as we study together, I hope that the Lord brings us understanding and clears up some of that confusion. Let's look at a few foundational questions uh, with this book. Who wrote the book of Revelation? It's John the disciple. He's the one that God uses to write this book. The same disciple that wrote the gospel of John and first, second, and third John. Who's he writing to? Uh, He's writing to seven churches. We'll see that in chapters 2 and 3. These churches are located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. When did he write the book? We don't know for sure, but we estimate between A.D. 95 and A.D. 96, because of early church history, puts it at that time frame that John was on the island of Patmos as an exile. 
during the reign of the Domitians. The Domitians were the ones who exiled people to Patmos. Where was the book written? It was written on the island of Patmos. John is exiled to this small island in the Mediterranean Sea, and it's there that God gives him the revelation of Jesus Christ in a greater way. What's so nice about the book of Revelation is it comes with its own outline. In verse 19, God gives this outline, this divine outline for the book of Revelation. He says, write the things which you have seen. That's chapter one. That's what we're going to study tonight, the person of Jesus Christ. Then write the things which are, which is chapters two and three, and that is the church age. That's the the people of Christ. That's what we're living in right now. And then write the things which will take place after this is chapters 4 through 22. So once we get to chapter 4, it's prophetic of things that have not yet taken place. So please hold on to verse 19 of chapter 1 because that's your outline. If you can remember that, then you're going to have a good framework for the book. Write the things which you've seen. Chapter 1. Write the things which are. Chapters 2 and 3. Write the things which will take place after this. Chapters 4 through 22. You guys got it? Got the divine outline? All right, let's jump into verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, The Greek word for revelation means to disclose truth, to unveil manifestation. So notice this book is not revelations, plural, it's revelation, singular, because it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's, it's the unveiling of Jesus Christ. What I love about this is John is old. This is the last book that, that he wrote, and he's having Christ revealed to him in a greater way. We never get to the point where we fully understand who Jesus is. There's more for us tonight to learn about Jesus. And yes, the book of Revelation deals with a lot of future end times events, but that's not the primary focus of this book. The primary focus is the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you approach the book of Revelation that way, you're going to be blessed. If you're like, Jesus, I want to understand you more. If you want to have a doctorate in eschatology, I can hardly say it, right? It may be a bit frustrating for you. But if your focus is on Christ, eschatology is the study of end times. If your focus is on Christ, then you're going to find yourself extremely refreshed. Which God gave to him to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. God gives the revelation to John so that John can share it with his servants, the seven churches in Asia Minor, us tonight. How far-reaching this revelation of Christ has been upon generation, upon generation, upon generation. Why does God reveal himself to us? So that we can go and share that revelation. The early disciples coming and experiencing who Jesus was, they would then go to their friends and say, come and see. I I found the Messiah. I want you to know the Messiah. Come and see. You've got to check him out. And God reveals himself to us, not so that we can just know him in a greater way, but that we can share it. That we can go and share the revelation of Christ with believers and unbelievers. If we forget that, 
we get all messed up spiritually. We have a lot of God pouring into our lives, but not a lot of us pouring into other people's lives. So, so when God shows you something about himself, remember, he's showing so that you can share it with others. Scripture tells us the things which must shortly take place, and this word shortly means that these events will, will take place quickly. That once they begin, they're going to happen with great rapidity. So, so not necessarily God saying that, well, this is going to happen tomorrow, but when it does happen, it's going to happen quickly. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So angel brings this revelation to John, and John records it, and it's signified by his angel. Now, this word signified in the Greek is really important because it literally means written in signs. The book of Revelation is written in signs, in pictures, in symbols, and that's one of the reasons why it's difficult to understand, because we are trying to interpret these symbols. But why would God write the book of Revelation in symbols? Because symbols and pictures are really powerful. If you're a creative learner, you're going to love the book of Revelation. If you're visual, you're going to really lay hold of, of this book. If you're a real linear thinker, if you're an engineer, you might struggle in the book of Revelation. Because we're going to read of the beast. And instead of God saying a political leader who's going to deceive the world, the scripture calls him a beast. That grabs your attention. How does God describe the church as the bride of Christ? He gives us this symbol of the church, and it invokes all of this emotion. And pictures do that. Symbols do that. And so, so God very purposefully gives this book to us written in signs. It's, it's signified by his angel. In verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. John, he bears witness to God's word, to the testimony of Jesus. He faithfully declares all of the things that he saw. In verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed are those who, who read, those who hear this, this prophecy. So God tells us that the book of Revelation is prophetic right here in verse 3. As you might imagine, there's a lot of views of how to interpret the book of Revelation. Some have the preterist view that says this is just symbolic of the trials that the church was going through with Rome. So they'll look at all of these symbols and say, this is just the church's struggle with Rome. Some take a historic view that, that symbolizes the historic problems that the church has had with the world. Some take a spiritual view that this is a spiritual allegory without direct application to actual events. All of those are weak sauce interpretations of the book of Revelation. Come on. That's just wimping out. They got the wimp award right there. Why? Because there's a futuristic view. Verse 3 tells us that this is prophecy, and prophecy is describing future events. So here's the joyous invitation of the book of Revelation, is read it and be blessed. It's a fun book to sit down with a cup of coffee 
with a cup of tea and read in one sitting. It's 21 chapters. If, if you just sat down and you read it, you could probably do it in, in a couple of hours. Husbands and wives, have some fun with it. Read it to each other. You know? I say, hey, well, let's read the book of Revelation out together. Read it as a family. So sit down and say, God told us that we're going to be blessed if, if we read it. Maybe some of you are really being moved by the Holy Spirit. Read it every week for the next six months that we're in the book of Revelation. For some of you, read it once. Read it once. You know what we'll be studying ahead and, and read it as we go through it. It's not how many times you read it, but read it and experience the blessing that comes from it. And as we read it, we also want to keep it. John to the seven churches which are in Asia. This is modern-day Turkey, are the seven churches. And we'll see those more in, in chapters 2 and 3. It's interesting to me that we need a fresh move of God in modern-day Turkey today, don't we? Dan Johnson had a great trip to Iraq. You can be praying for him. He's supposed to get home tomorrow. Excited to hear of the, the gospel movements that are happening in that area of the world. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Jesus is the author of grace and the author of peace, and he's the one who is right now. But he also was present in the past. He was, but he's also the one that's going to consume the future. He is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. What is this seven spirits all about? Well, we know there's one Holy Spirit, so it's not that there's seven of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is one. So one of the thoughts of the seven spirits before the throne is, is the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11, uh, verse 2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Seven attributes of the Spirit. But you know, gang, we ultimately don't know what the seven spirits are before the throne. I can't wait to find out. When we go home to be with the Lord, I'm like, okay, Father, what was the seven spirits all about? We know that there's one Holy Spirit, but there's seven spirits before the throne. A description of Jesus and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So, so Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the faithful witness of what? He's the faithful witness of the Father. He came to do the Father's business. He said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's accurately declared to us the love of the Father. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead, which means that he has preeminence. Christ is the first to be raised from the dead, to never die again. Lazarus rose from the dead only to have to die again. That's the only bummer part of his, his resurrection. I'm going to have to go through death a, a second time. But Jesus rose from the dead to never die again, and, and he's the firstborn of the dead. He has preeminence. Jesus is also the ruler over the kings of the earth. If the, the kings of the earth would just realize that Jesus is their ruler, right? But Christ, as the Almighty One, He's ruling and reigning over the kings of the earth. And this should bring us comfort because God is up to something, even though we don't know what it is. 
So as he's ruling over the kings of the earth, it's ultimately leading up to his final plan and his second coming. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You're loved by Jesus. This almighty, amazing, all-powerful God is also the God of love. He loves you. He's proven his love and that he's washed us from our sins. Many other Bible translations translate washed as freed, and both are accurate. Jesus has washed us from our sins. We're completely forgiven of our sins, but we're also freed from our sin. We're not under the bondage of sin anymore. The penalty of sin is broken, and the power of sin is broken. And this all took place from his own blood that was shed for us. In verse 6, And has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's made you a king. We don't really feel like kings, do we? And he's made us a, a priest in his kingdom. As we study the Old Testament, the office of king and priest were never given to the same person. The kings were never allowed to be priests, and the priests were never allowed to be kings. It was too much power. Those were separate entities. And when a king would try to cross that, God was quick to bring accountability and judgment. But the Lord in the new covenant, through what Jesus has done for us, he's made us a king. We get to rule and reign with Christ. Saints are going to return with Christ to rule and to reign. But he's also made us priests where we get to minister to the Father. So being king speaks of responsibility. Being priest speaks of worship and the access that we have to God's throne room. God receives the glory for this. I'm sure the angels look on and go, you really chose those knuckleheads to be your kings and priests? Those sinners that were washed by the blood of Jesus, by your grace, those are your priests? Those are your kings? And the Lord's like, yep, it's all to his praise and to his glory. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Jesus is coming. The promise of his second coming. The promise of him ruling and reigning. And every eye will see him. That's important. The second coming of Christ is not going to be this obscure event where people are like, did Jesus come? Did he not come? Every eye will see him. Every eye will, will behold him in his, his second coming. Even they who pierced him and all of the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Who pierced Christ? Who crucified Christ? The nation of Israel. And there's a prophecy in Zechariah 12, verse 10. says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. So it's not until the second coming of Christ that the nation of Israel collectively realizes, oh my, look what we've done. They look upon the one whom they've pierced. And Christ still bears the wounds of the cross. We see Thomas touching the wounds of Christ after his, his resurrection. 
it's visible enough where they're able to see the one whom they've pierced. They still see the wounds of Christ. They, they see those scars of, of Christ, and they realize we were the ones that crucified Christ. And it's that moment as a nation that they embrace Christ. A powerful prophecy. And Jesus declares this to John about himself. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I am. We know as Moses is in the wilderness, the burning bush, the bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. God begins to speak to Moses to send him back to Egypt to deliver the children of Israel. Moses says, I gotta know your name. What does God say? I am that I am. I'm the almighty. I'm the all-powerful one. You can't even describe me with words. Jesus ascribed himself to this great I am statement. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the, the great I am. Here we see another I am statement. I'm the alpha, I'm the omega. Alpha and omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Jesus says I'm the beginning point, but I'm also the ending point. The beginning and the end. I'm the almighty. As we're going to get a description of Christ in just a moment, he is described as the almighty one. In the gospels, we get the revelation of Jesus being a humble servant, coming in human flesh. But here in Revelation, we see Jesus as the almighty conquering king. Verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, the humility of John. He says, I'm, I'm your brother. I'm your companion. We're journeying through tribulation together in God's kingdom. We're walking in patience and endurance of Jesus Christ. Was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Christ. So John was placed upon Patmos because of the word of God, because of the, the testimony of Jesus. He was persecuted. According to early church fathers, John was sent to this island as a prisoner following his effective pastorate in Ephesus. So, so many of the early church fathers record this as well of John having to go to this small island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's in this place of exile, this place of isolation, that he receives the greater revelation of Jesus Christ. This is going to be our in-depth study on Wednesday night. He's come on Wednesday night because in isolation, there's revelation of Christ. If we're looking for it, when we're on our own island of Patmos, God will reveal himself to us in, in a greater way. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Important part of John receiving this revelation of Jesus is he's in the Spirit. He's open to the Spirit. He's walking in the Spirit. And the Spirit of God is revealing Jesus to him. This is the work of the Spirit in our lives is to point us to Jesus. How do you really know the Spirit of God is working when we understand Jesus in a greater way? 
So as we learn more of Jesus, let's be open to the work of the Spirit in our lives. Don't, don't be afraid of the Spirit. Don't be afraid of what the Holy Spirit's doing in your lives. Saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Why does God repeat himself? Because we need to hear it. When God repeats himself, it's because we need to have that really sink in. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia. So here he is. He's in exile on Patmos. God gives him this vision. He's to write it down and send it to these seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. We'll look forward to studying those churches more in chapter 2 and 3. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. So God begins speaking to John, and John turns to listen. This angel comes and gives him this vision of Jesus, and he gives his attention to this voice, this, this loud voice. When God speaks, do we listen? Do we give him our attention? Listen for the voice of God. Listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. For God to speak through his word. To speak through situations in our lives. But it's wise for us to begin to distinguish the voice of God. God, you're trying to speak to me. So I'm going to turn and listen. I'm going to stop what I'm doing. And I'm going to listen. I'm going to hear what the Spirit is speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. These lampstands represent the seven churches. It's rich in history from the Old Testament with the lampstands that were in the tabernacle and the temple, the menorah, where there would be one primary candle and then three coming off, the total of seven. Menorah would have, have seven candles, seven lamps, and there, there's seven churches. And the churches are to be light in a dark world. So he turns and he sees these golden lampstands. And remember, the book of Revelation's in what? It's in symbols. So God gives us a symbol of the church as, as a lampstand. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Jesus. This is a title that was given to Christ. It starts with Daniel 7, verse 13, the Son of Man is used, and it's actually Jesus' favorite title of himself. He most often referred to him as the Son of Man. Son speaks of his deity, man speaks of his humanity, his relatability, and here as Jesus is being revealed as the Almighty One, Jesus wants us to know he's the Son of Man. He's the Almighty One in human flesh. And where is Jesus? He's in the midst of of the seven lampstands. He's in the midst of the seven churches. As we'll find out in the next few weeks, these churches are not perfect. Surprise, surprise. These seven churches had, had issues, had sin that needed to be dealt with. You could even say that these seven churches were hypocritical, that they weren't living up to who they should be. But guess what? Who's still there? 
Where's Jesus? This amazing, almighty Savior, God in human flesh, he's in the midst of the church. Why do we gather together as believers? Because Jesus is in our midst. Not because we're so lovely, or not because we've got our act together, but because Jesus promises to be with us. As we spend time with believers, we do get hurt, don't we? And we get disappointed. And if we're not careful, our flesh and Satan is going to be so quick to come and say, hey, you don't need to go to church. You don't need to gather together with believers. And what are you missing out on? You're missing out on the revelation of Jesus. And yes, Jesus meets us individually, and he's with us personally, but he promises where two or three are gathered, he's in their midst. Jesus loves it when believers get together and he hangs out with believers. He's here with us tonight. And it's him that we seek and it's him that we look to. And when you gather together in a small group, Jesus is with you. He's at your small group. And that's why you go, because he's in the midst. When you have believers into your home and you're talking the things of God, Jesus is there. He's there. So, the reason that we love the church is because Jesus loves the church. The reason that we're into the church is because Jesus is into the church. And it's for such a time as this that we need one another. Don't try to do this on, on your own. With excitement, we gather together because we know that Jesus is in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. He's clothed with a garment down to the feet. So as this picture of Jesus, the Almighty, the resurrected Savior, he's got a garment down to his feet. This speaks of Jesus as our priest. The priests would have these amazing garments that were given to them in the Old Testament, and Jesus is the ultimate high priest. The garment covers the body, that's obvious. But who is the body of Christ? We are, and we're covered by Christ. He is our covering. He is our high priest. And he's girded about the chest with a golden band. Jesus got some bling bling. Just, just, just a golden band across uh, the chest. We're, we're robed in, in Christ's righteousness. In verse 14, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. If your hair is going gray or going white or has already gone gray or gone white, wear it proudly. Just let people know, I'm trying to be like Jesus, right? So Jesus got this beautiful, beautiful white hair, like wool, as white as snow. My grandma Warren, especially, she just had this beautiful, thick white hair. And I always knew her with, with white hair. My mom was the youngest of, of five. And so when I came along, my, my grandma was, was pretty elderly, right? And she just had this beautiful white hair, and she rocked it with beauty, right? And here's Jesus with this white hair. But what's, what's the symbolism of it? That he's the ancient of days. This is a title that's given to Christ Daniel 7, 9, I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated and his garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was pure wool and his throne was a fiery flame, its wheels as a burning fire. So this image of Christ is even revealed in Daniel chapter 7. The white hair, it speaks of his wisdom 
and his purity. As we reflect on the nature of Christ and who Jesus is, it's a time where we need wisdom. And he's our counselor. He's our wonderful counselor. Go to him for wisdom. And Jesus also grants to us his purity. He makes our sins to be white as snow. He knows no sin, and he is able to give us wisdom and to make us pure. In verse 15, in his eyes like a flame of fire. This is both comforting and piercing. Because there's an aspect to a fire when it's in your fireplace. Ah, it's so comforting. There's nothing better than an old school fire and the wood crackling as long as it's in the fireplace. And when you're in Christ, his eyes looking towards you of comfort and love, of forgiveness through faith in the blood of Jesus, there's nothing like it. But there's also an aspect where the eyes of Jesus are, are, are piercing. He's looking at us with love, but he's also looking at us of, I know everything about you. I know what you're trying to hide. I know what you're afraid of. He definitely reads us like a book. His feet were like fine brass as refined in a furnace. Why would God's feet be likened to fine brass? as refined in a furnace, because the God-man, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, walks with us in fiery trials. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up to Nebuchadnezzar, are thrown in the fiery furnace, and a fourth person shows up. Nebuchadnezzar says, the fourth is like unto the Son of God. Jesus showing up in the pages of the Old Testament there's not a trial that we go through that Jesus doesn't walk with us. So this almighty God also is the one who walks with us in trials. Jesus is a man of sorrows. His voice is the sound of many waters. This is ultimate authority. The sound of crashing waves is powerful. It's calming and it's also consistent. He's the, the voice of many waters. He had in his hand, in his right hand, seven stars. We'll see that these seven stars are seven angels or seven messengers that are ascribed to each church. Each, each church had a, a star, an angel, a messenger, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So Jesus is the one who speaks the word. He is the word. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. And the words of Christ are, are powerful. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. We know Jesus as the carpenter. We know Jesus as the crucified savior. But we also need to know Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah who rose from the dead. Amen? We need to know Jesus revealed here in Revelation chapter 1 where he rocks everything. <laughs> he is all-powerful. And his mouth, he speaks words that are sharper than a two-edged sword. His countenance is, is shining in its strength. This is so overwhelming to John. When I saw him, I felt his feet as dead. John's just completely overwhelmed at this vision of the glorified Christ. And he falls down as dead. He falls down in, in reverence. 
but he laid his right hand on me saying to me, and I love the picture of this because you've got this glorified, majestic, almighty Jesus and, and here's John laying dead and Jesus comes down to put his hand on him. <laughs> How do you put your hand on somebody who's laying on the ground? You, you get down and the love and the compassion and the kindness of Christ He laid his right hand on me and said to him, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm the first and I'm the last. The third time that Jesus emphasizes that message of him being the first and the last. I am he who lives. Jesus lives right now. But but he was dead. He did die upon the cross. And behold, I'm alive forevermore, never to be crucified again, never to experience death again. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. I, I have the keys of death and hell. Jesus is able to set us free from death and set us free from, from hell. For us as believers, we have confidence. We have confidence that when this life is done, we're going to forever be with the Lord. We have peace knowing that loved ones who are in Christ who have passed away, death hasn't had the final word. The divine outline that we talked about, verse 19, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place after this. The things which you have seen, chapter 1, the revelation of Christ, the things which are, the church age, revelations 2 and 3, and then the things that take place after this, chapter 4 through chapter 22. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So no doubt, no doubt. The lampstand represents the seven churches. We as a church are to be a lampstand to our community, to those that don't know Christ as our Savior, to the neighborhoods that we live in, the apartment complexes that we dwell in, where we go to work. God has us on mission to shine the love of Jesus Christ in this dark world. We're a lampstand. What about these seven stars that are in the hands of Christ? It says that they're, they're angels, and there's some debate on this. The, the word angel means messenger. So is the messenger the pastor of those seven churches? Well, that's kind of cool. The pastor's in the hand of Christ. But it's also kind of cool to think of each church having their own angel. That's cool too, right? What if God ascribed a, an angel to each church and said, boom, here's a, an angel for this church, here's an angel for that church, and the angels are, are in my hand. The clearest interpretation of it is, is that there is an angel that's ascribed to, to each church. So as we approach this book, we, we approach it in humility, we approach it in anticipation that God is going to reveal himself in a greater way. And tonight we step back and we simply get to stand in wonder and awe of the majesty of who Christ is, our risen Savior. He, he's the Almighty. Words can't even begin to, to describe him. Do you need a counselor? Well, he's got white hair to prove it. 
I guarantee you Jesus has seen it before. He's not surprised by our situation. He has wisdom if we'll come and ask. The book of James tells us if, if we ask in faith, he will give it liberally. He's ready to generously give, give wisdom. Do you need purity? Jesus in his white hair, he, he's got purity wrapped up. And he can cleanse us from our sins and give us power over sin. Come to him. Do you need someone to walk with you in trial? Do you feel like you're abandoned in trial? That nobody really understands what you're going through? Well, you have the Almighty, the Savior, who's got feet that have been in the furnace. And he's walking with you. He's with you. He's going to continue to be with you. Do you need a covering? A covering for sin, a covering for brokenness. You haven't been an adequate covering for yourself. Others can't be an adequate covering for you. But Jesus is that more than adequate covering. He, he's the high priest. Are you hearing his voice? As you hear his voice, turn and listen. Give him your attention. Jesus, I want to, to hear you. I want to experience you in a greater way. And through the eyes of faith, God hasn't given us this vision that John had, but it was shared for us. The vision was given to John so John could share it with his servants. So for us, through faith, to say, this is my Savior. Doesn't Jesus rock? Isn't he amazing? Isn't he the Almighty? And we look forward to him coming. We look forward to him ruling and reigning and making everything right. So let's stand together and let's rejoice in Christ tonight. Jesus, we do stand in awe of you tonight. We thank you for this glimpse of your glory, that you are the one with white hair, that out of your mouth speaks words that are sharper than a two-edged sword, that your countenance is, is beaming with glory, that you've got feet that have gone through the furnace, that you, Jesus, are with us, that you're our covering, that you're the one who is pierced for our sins, that you've washed us and you've freed us of sin. So Jesus, we make much of you. And we do ask by your grace that you would reveal more of your character to us, more of who you are, that as you speak, that we would turn and listen, and that we could go and share you, that we could be the lampstand that, that you desire. So Father, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.